I'm going to be vulnerable with y'all for a second about an experience that I just had in the back between me and the, the Holy Spirit there. That uh, this just I'm going to hold this one for a while. Uh, we're singing. Uh, Matthew, what was the song just before this last one? What did we call that? Goodness of God. We're singing goodness of God. Your goodness is running after me. And Matthew says, do you believe it? And I, <laughs> Lily might have heard me. I murmured back there. I'm trying. I'm trying. And, and the, the Spirit says to me, goodness and mercy have followed you all the days of your life. Slow down and let them catch you. So... I'm, tr I'm trying, I'm trying. Uh, it's good to be with all of you this morning. Uh, as, as we mentioned earlier in the announcements, uh, we're about to start a church-wide series in the space, church-wide adult Bible study on themes around generosity. Uh, Pastor Jim will be leading that class here in this space during the Sunday school hour uh, during the month of August. And uh, I was kind of excited. Uh, I'm going to speak about money this morning, too, because that's what everyone loves at church. Come to church, hear about uh, the preachers talk about money. Um, and so I, you can kind of think of today as a primer for that class. Now, I didn't do that on purpose. Uh, some of y'all know that we tend to follow the lectionary here at Townview. Uh, it's not always the case. We take breaks from it to do our own series, to dig deeper into something that's going really well or something that we feel like God has to say to this congregation or we focus on a specific season of the secular or liturgical church calendar. But most of the time we're preaching from the lectionary, which is, it's a tool. Uh, the lectionary, if you're not familiar with the concept, is a calendar of texts that run through a three-year cycle that churches around the world from all different denominations participate in. And the idea is if you stick with it for three years, you would have heard the whole story, the redemptive arc of the Bible from the pulpit in those three years, which also means churches around the world are engaging with the same texts on certain days, and there, there's some really neat beauty there. So if you visit another church or stream another service today, you might hear a sermon on a similar text. Uh, so that's, that's kind of neat. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword of a blessing, though, to use the lectionary, because sometimes it invites us into texts that, um, as a preacher, I might choose to avoid. And uh, today is, is kind of one of those days for me. The passage that's being offered to us from the Gospel of Luke is a brief and fairly well-known parable, and I don't like well-known stuff. There's too many landmines, you know, everyone's already got an idea of what they mean. Uh, but this parable is perfectly suited for the task of opening our season of talking about generosity. So uh, let's go for it. My, my notes here say, lead with bad economic news. I don't think I actually need to do that. Uh, Y'all know it's hard out there. I know it's hard out there. Jesus knows it's hard out there. It's the Bad economic news is so ubiquitous. My notes could just say, lead with bad news or lead with the news. So well, I'll just I'll jump right into it. The passage that the lectionary has given us to work with this week puts Jesus in a situation with someone asking for help with a family financial crisis. Because if there's one thing that makes dealing with money better, it's family. 
Everyone loves family. And yeah, the uncomfortable laughter means that I'm right. Uh, nothing makes financial problems better than sharing it with your family. So let's go ahead and give me the first slide up here. Uh, this is Luke chapter 12. We're starting at the 12th verse as we enter the setup for this parable. So someone in the crowd, it's, it sounds like they interrupt, like Jesus is teaching and someone's just like, hey, if you're a teacher, you know what it's like to have a, an unexpected question pop up in the middle of class. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, Jesus, tell my brother, oh, that's a good parent statement too, tell, tell him to, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me judge or an arbiter between you? It's actually a bit of an ironic line. No one else is suited to be the judge, right? And to, it's fairly reasonable to go to a rabbi for this sort of arbitration. But Jesus says, who made me judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Right from the start here, Jesus is setting a trap for his first listeners and for us. For from the opening line of this story, we don't have a reason not to like this certain rich man. And assuming that some of Jesus' listeners knew their Bible, Jesus is laying a trap for them. Because from an Old Testament perspective, this man's earthly riches is a sign of heavenly blessing. God likes this guy. That's why he's rich. And then the fact that the ground is yielding an abundant harvest. This is another sign of divine blessing. You can't make your plants grow. That's God up to something. In fact, God has blessed this man to such an extent that it, it's become a problem. His barns are no longer big enough. They're no longer sufficient. And he has to make a decision about what to do with all his extra grain. Back to the, the parable, verse 18. Then he, the rich man said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I will say to myself, Self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Jesus is again uh, relying on his listeners' knowledge of the Bible here uh, for this little detail that that phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, comes from Ecclesiastes 8.15, uh, where the wise teacher suggests that the events of life are actually pretty random. So it's best to eat, drink, and be merry and enjoy what you have while you have it, because tomorrow's not promised. Perfect setup for the next bit of the story. And so the rich man quotes the Bible verse to himself while having this internal discussion, which by the way is the closest thing he utters to a prayer, and it's to himself. So we have a wealthy, successful, entrepreneurial, industrial, Bible-quoting man on our hands in this story. Next verse, God speaks. But then God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you, then 
Who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Jesus concludes, This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Jesus has taken us on quite a roller coaster in this very short story. The rich man, the blessed man, the foolish man, the dead man. So at what point did this man become a fool? I think it's about the time that he started talking to himself. He receives all of this blessing, but experiences a total lack of creativity as to what to do with it. When the blessing arrives from God, and he ends up with more than he could possibly use or even store, he doesn't ask God what to do. He inquires of himself. And he gives himself terrible advice. That's something that I... It's, it's almost a catchphrase in my pastoral care work, is don't believe everything you think. This man is believing everything he thinks. And this is where his foolishness reaches the level of inciting judgment. The, the ambition, the enthusiasm, the passion, the determination to tear down all of his barns and build newer, larger, better ones to store his excess, to celebrate his excess, to worship his excess. In doing so, his barns have become temples. Just a few passages later in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus will remind us in Luke 16, I think there's a slide for this, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The foolish man here has confused the value of his possessions. He's, he's confused the purpose of his possessions. And maybe most importantly, the foolish man has misplaced the source of his security here. Uh, where he could be thanking God for the blessing of this harvest and seeking ways to honor God with this blessing, he's congratulating himself on his achievement and putting systems in place to insulate himself and his wealth. This might as well be the definition of mammon. Do you know that old word? That's an old arcade, archaic. Archaic. It's one of my favorite words, archaic. It's an old archaic word. We don't use it much outside of the church or Bible talk these days. If you pick up a King James version and you read this passage, you will encounter the term. Jesus will say, no one can serve two masters. Either they'll hate one and love the other, or they'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. And the, the story of how we get our modern Bibles, mammon here is sort of a leftover from the Latin. And in the Latin, it's kind of a leftover from the Aramaic spoken in Jesus' day. Me, mo, ne, mammon. Today, we most commonly see this word translated as wealth or riches, but there's, there's something like that, you know? I think it said riches in the NIV. But there is more built into this phrase, into this word that Jesus, Jesus is using, mammon. It, it speaks of how wealth can corrupt and twist you when you allow it to guide your heart. Maybe this is why Paul, in his letter to his young friend Timothy, writes, I think we've got a slide for this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. 
For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money has led some away from the faith. The love of money has brought many grief. Those seeking to be rich, hoarding our abundance fall into all kinds of temptations and traps. The problem here isn't having money. The problem here isn't owning things. But the problem is when money has you. The problem is when your things own you. Think back to what uh, David read so well earlier in the service from Colossians 3. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Here's the money line. Yes, that was a bad attempt at a joke. Verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. The type of greed that we're seeing in this, this parable that Jesus has given us today is an exercise in idolatry. Because greed isn't just, it's not just wanting something. It's okay to want things. But it's, it's craving it. It's coveting it. It's needing it, even at the expense of others. It is part of this sinful idea that we are the source of good things in our lives, that we are the source of blessing, that we are the source of our destiny. This is what the rich fool in Jesus' story has done. In his pseudo-prayer to himself, he thinks he knows the future. He thinks he knows how the rest of the story is going to go, and he thinks he's the main character. And in his confidence, he moves from having wealth to his wealth having him. It's dictating his story now. He does this wild and ridiculous thing to keep and protect his surplus. And in his zeal for his, his bounty here, his grain silos and barns have become temples to mammon. And his vision and values have been corrupted. The only path forward he can see with his wealth is to hoard it, to hide it, to lock it down and protect it for himself. And think about, like really, think about how silly this is. Like, there's only three things you can do with grain, right? You can consume it, you or someone else can eat it, you can plant it, or you can store it. And the kicker, here's the kicker, grain has a shelf life. Even our modern and manipulated grain crops can only sit in climate-controlled silos for approximately 18 months. Thanks, Monsanto. Even if his barns are big enough, our rich fool, even if his barns are big enough to hold it all, it's only good before, for so long before it rots or before he does. The application of grain here is actually really useful for our setting too because there are really only three things you can do with money. 
You can spend it. You can consume it. You can invest it, plant it. You can hoard it, store it, save it. Jesus warns against these sorts of things. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Jesus knows what he's talking about here. He says, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do not store up treasure in barns where vermin and moth destroy. Do not store up money in accounts where the market and inflation destroy. Jesus is pretty serious about this. And he offers this dichotomy several times in his teaching. Treasure in heaven, treasure on earth. You can't love God and money. In today's parable, Jesus offers up those who are rich for themselves and those who are rich towards God. Even reading from Paul today in Colossians, we get a similar set of options. Set your, things, your mind on things above or earthly things. Because there's really, there are only two ways to think about our financial lives. There's the way of the kingdom, and there's the way of the market. And, and these two realms, they're telling very different stories. They have very different values, very different priorities. The market wants you to see money as the ends, the point of the story, while the kingdom wants you to see money as a means, a tool to accomplish greater kingdom good. Uh, see 1 John 1, 9. The market wants you to trust in your own power and capabilities to build the perfect life. The kingdom says trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. That's Proverbs 3. The market says, look out. They're out to get you. They're coming to get your stuff. The kingdom says, who by worrying has added a hair to their head, not me, or an hour to their life? That's Matthew 6. The market says, get yours first. Build your life, your house, your fortune, your legacy. Then there'll be plenty of room for philanthropy or whatever later. The kingdom says, Seek first the kingdom of God and righteousness, and everything else will be added to you. It's Matthew 6. The market says, work, hoard, so that you can control your future. The kingdom says, you fool. As you had come into this world naked from your mother's womb, so you will return as you came. You will take nothing from the fruit of your labor. There's nothing that you can carry in your hand. That's Ecclesiastes 5. The ethics, the vision the promise of the market's way of living, the, the lure of mammon. I, I heard a preacher uh, named John Miller. Uh, he had this great line for it. He said, it's like drinking salt water. That's too good to not use. The, the way of the market is like drinking salt water. The, the impulse to consume, the desire for more, the lusting and clawing for status and position, the quest for the newest and the greatest, it's like drinking salt water. It can temporarily quench your desire for water, but it will not quench your thirst, and it will eventually kill you. So, so what is this? Is this a stewardship sermon? Is this a you-need-to-give-more-money-to-church sermon? No. This is more of a get-your-head-out-of-your-butt kind of sermon. This is a gut chat 
check sermon, a warning sermon, a get your priorities straight sermon, because there are only two options when it comes to wealth, any kind of wealth, and everyone in this room is rich in one way or another. Those options are God or mammon. Are you using your wealth or is your wealth using you? Do you have money or does money have you? Do you possess things or are you possessed by them? Who are you serving? Who are you loving? Who are you worshiping with the way you use your means? Is it God or mammon? Whose gospel are you spreading? For so many of us American Christians, this is a big issue, especially for American Christians. Our wealth, our finances, our means, our stuff, it's, it's a holdout, a place of resistance in our heart's surrender to the kingdom, a little pocket of rebellion. Many of us have given everything over to Christ except this. Maybe you've decided to trust Jesus with your eternal destiny, but not your financial destiny. Maybe you've decided to follow Jesus, but you're pretty sure that his teachings on money, uh, 11 out of 39 of his parables are about money. Jesus talks about money a lot. Uh, Maybe these teachings, you know, they're heavenly ideals and not really meant to be attempted in the real world. Maybe you're here today and you're, you're a great Christian at church. Like, really, really. You're a godly spouse, a godly parent at home. You represent Christ well in the community through kindness and love and service. But at work, at the bank, at the firm, the rules are just different. So you're playing a different game. The rules are different. Maybe you've trusted God with everything except your retirement, except your career, except your future. And it's so, it's so easy. It's so easy to do this. There's so much cultural inertia that just pulls us along with the the kingdom of the market. Tells us to set aside our career, set aside our livelihoods, our possessions, our wealth. That's ours. That's for us. Jesus can have the rest of it, but those are mine. When all of it, all of it is a gift from God, when all of it belongs to God. Who are we worshiping with our wealth? It's a question for me too. It is revealed in what we do with our abundance as well as with our tight budgets. Especially now, as as we face recession, money is on everyone's mind and everyone is watching. The world is watching. So the question is, who is the king of your wealth? Is it mammon? Is it Jesus? Is it you?